Welcome to LifePoint. If we haven't met, my name is Ben Miller. I'm the Campus Life Pastor here, which really means that if you were, if you were in a race, I would be second place. So I am the consolation prize of pastors this morning. So, but Paul is at Delaware, and he is preaching there, so we want to pray for him this morning and pray that um, God speaks through him. But as we go through this message this morning, we are, back, we are in our sermon series on Ecclesiastes called Under the Sun, and the big thing we've been saying every Sunday is that God offers us a full life in an empty world. We can look at the, our, our lives, we can look at the world around us, and we can think about all the things that we think the world has that as believers we don't. Or we can see the emptiness of the world around us, and that those of us, of us who are in Christ have a full life, a life that is honoring to God. You know, life without God is meaningless. But today we want to work through Ecclesiastes 7. And as I was going through my study this week, I thought a lot about this chapter 7. And it just seemed incredibly ironic to me. It seemed like there's a lot of contradictions to what Solomon is saying, how he's living, and the world around us. So we're going to talk about four ironies this morning. The irony of Solomon's great wisdom, Solomon's statements about sin, the irony of being self-righteous, and the irony of how God really views you. So there's a lot to go over, and sometimes I think when we look at the Word of God, we know in our, in our minds that the Word of God does not contradict itself because every part of the Word of God is useful it's useful for reproof and for teaching, and it doesn't truly contradict itself, but sometimes it seems to. But when it does, we need to take a deeper look and realize that these, con- these seemingly contradictions point us to a greater truth. And that's what I want to talk about this morning. But before we do, let's pray for us here today, and we're also going to pray for Paul. God, we thank you so much that you brought us here today today. We pray that you would open your word before us, that you'd lay it bare before us, and that, God, you would, you would use your spirit to speak through us and in us this morning, and that we would walk away changed. We pray for, for Paul this morning, that, God, you would speak through him as well, and um, I pray that the, the Delaware campus will get a great blessing by having Paul there this morning. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, as we start... Looking through the Word of God, we're going to work through the first concept, which is the irony of Solomon's wisdom. And, you know, we, we need to understand who Solomon is first. Solomon was a king. He was a king that was David's son. He was the product of an adulterous affair that David had, and his, his mother was Bathsheba. And this whole scenario with David is that he took Bathsheba as his wife and then basically killed her husband. Now, God worked through that situation, his repentance, and a lot of other things happened because of it, and David never escaped the consequences of that sin. But strangely, of all the choices of David's sons that were available, Solomon became the next king. And if we look at Solomon, 
Solomon, as a young boy, prayed for wisdom. God considered this good and right for God's king to be wise. So he gave him wisdom, and Solomon grew in wisdom as he got older. And he is, the Bible calls him the wisest man to ever live. And in many ways, he was. He built great temples for God. He, he, he built a, king, a castle, and he, built, uh, he made the, the kingdom of Israel what it, what it became, which was something to be looked at from a distance from all countries in the world. Solomon did amazing things, and he was probably the wealthiest person that ever lived. Because if, if we were to do the math, and, and I've, I've done some research on this, he, would, he was probably worth, in today's dollars, about $5 trillion dollars. That's math I can't do. It's math that doesn't register in my head. How many houses is that? How many cars is that? I don't know. But it's a lot of money. It's like a fifth of our national debt debt or something like that, right? It's a lot. And so let's look at Ecclesiastes 2, 1 through 3, because I want to get some context around what's happening here in Solomon's life. Ecclesiastes 2, 1 to 3. He says, In my heart, come now. I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But behold, this was also vanity. I said of laughter, it is mad, and of, and of pleasure, what use is it? I searched my heart, how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom, and how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. Let me explain what he's saying. I don't recommend this path, by the way. I don't think the Word of God recommends this path. But Solomon says, it's like he's, you know, in my mind, he's driving down the freeway in his car. I know they didn't have cars. Maybe his chariot. And he's thinking to himself, you know what? I don't know that I've tried everything out there. How do we know it's really evil? How do we know it's really bad? Or, if you've ever heard people say this, with the, you know, people often say this when they're trying to excuse their behavior. They say, what's so bad about it? And so Solomon's saying, what's so bad about it? And so what he does is he say, he's like, you know what, I'm going to try it all to see what's good for God's people in their short lives. It's not a recommended path, right? I don't think any of us should go out and try every evil thing in order to see what's good. What we have is right here right? And Solomon says, I'm going to try it all. He says, I'm going to try comedy. So he's like going out to comedy clubs every night and trying it out. He's, he said, I'll try wine or alcohol, and then I'll try pleasure. None of these things really worked out for him. When we look at sin in our lives, and we look at the Word of God, and we look at King Solomon, I want you to understand something. Solomon, as the wisest person to ever live, had a problem. He couldn't, in all his wisdom, outwise sin. And that's our next point this morning. Solomon, in all his wisdom, could not outwise sin. He couldn't outthink it. There, there was nothing in his brain that he said, you know what, I'm going to outthink sin and I can do it. And so he walked down that path and he tried. It didn't work. So what does that say for the rest of us? 
if he was the wisest person to ever live, first of all, that's not saying much. (laughs) It says something about how wise we can be as humans. What What are our limitations in our, how do we cap out our wisdom? Uh, if Solomon's the wisest person ever lived, we cap out pretty early, right? Let, let's look together at Ecclesiastes 7 and go through 19 to 25. So this is the main piece of our, our, uh, our study this morning. Ecclesiastes 7, 19 to 25. One person is stronger than ten, ten leading citizens of a town. Not a single person on earth is always good and never sins. Don't eavesdrop on others. You may hear your servant curse you, for you know how often you yourself have cursed others. I've always tried my best to let wisdom guide my thoughts and actions. I said to myself, I'm determined to be wise, but it didn't work. Wisdom is always distant and difficult to find. I searched everywhere, determined to find wisdom and understand the reason for things. I was determined to prove myself that wickedness is stupid and foolishness is madness. So let's break it down a little bit. He starts out by saying, one wise person is worth ten strong men, right? Ten strong citizens. And, And there's a truth to that in a sense, because you could say, okay, well, if somebody was wise, they could come up with an invention, and that invention would, I don't know, auto-locking gates to old, old city walls, I don't know, but, or, or like catapults, or something, something that a that wise person could create that would make war easier, in a sense, but that's not all that wise, is it? Because when we think about wisdom, it's wiser not to get involved in war, if at all possible. So he starts to talk about not even a single person on earth is always good and never sins, and, and the fact is that the Bible supports this in other places as well. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Our righteousness is as dirty rags, is what the Bible says. Don't eavesdrop on others. You may hear your servant curse you, for you know how often you've cur- you yourself have cursed others. Well, really what it's saying is don't be a hypocrite, but we... We've heard that before. We know that to be true. And then he says something really important. He says, let wisdom guide. I, I tried to let wisdom guide my thoughts. I tried to explore wisdom. But here's the important part. It didn't work. He found wisdom distant, hard to find. The wisest person who ever lived found it difficult to be wise. In fact, that's our next point this morning. The irony of Solomon's wisdom is this, that Solomon, in all his wisdom, did not see himself as all that wise. In fact, he says he is not wise. The wisest person on earth is not that wise. So what do we do with this? I mean, it's, it seems like a shocking revelation. There's an irony here. Why are we even listening to him? It's because there's a bigger truth at play. What he's really getting at is that we should allow the word, God's word, allow God and his word to define a better path of living. That's our next point this morning. Allow God and his word to define a better path of living. So what does that really mean? It means <clears throat> that we should tune out 
the entire world and what the world defines as good or evil. Tune out friends, family, people around us, the news, whoever is disagreeing with the way that God defines a wise path of living and realize that the Word of God lays it out for us. In fact, there's a lot to be said about God's rules. You know, God is not a cosmic killjoy. He's not up there in heaven saying, you know what, I, could, you know, I want to think of ways that I can stop you from having fun, stop you from enjoying life and taking pleasure in things. And that's what the enemy, that's what Satan accused God of in the Garden of Eden. He accused God of being a cosmic killjoy. He said, God doesn't want you to be like him. God is not up there as a cosmic killjoy. All of his rules are meant for our good and the good of others. I'll give you an illustration. If you've ever taken care of kids, raised kids of your own, seen kids from a distance, you'll probably be able to figure out this illustration. How do we teach kids not to stick their fingers in electric outlets? When they're growing up, I would, I would say, we, we, you know, if we, if we tell them no, or we slap their little fingers gently and say no, guess what? You're all cosmic killjoys. You know what the best way to teach your kids how to, not put their, how to not to put their fingers in the outlet is? To put them in there. Take their little fingers and shove it in yourself. <laughs> teach them the lesson. They'll learn that way. I mean, if you're not a psychopath, that's not how you taught your kids. I mean, we can't sit here and say, how are they ever going to learn about science and electricity if we don't shove their fingers in the outlet? It doesn't work. God's not up there like the parent who does that and says, you know what, I want you to try everything evil and see the consequences and see the damage it does to your soul and see the damage it does to your life and the lives around you. And I want you to experience that to its fullest before you understand that I already told you no. That's not what God's doing. The reason why God gives us any rules at all is because he knows what's best for us and for the community of people. If all of us would choose not to steal, we wouldn't need as many police. If all of us would choose not to kill, not to commit adultery, we wouldn't destroy a lot of marriages. I mean, the, the list could go on and on, right? I mean, God defines the right path as what is good for us. He's not up there as a cosmic killjoy. The irony of Solomon's wisdom is what he is, wasn't that wise. But let's talk a little bit about the irony of Solomon's statements about sin. Let's look back at Ecclesiastes 7.20. He says, Not a single person on earth is always good and never sins. Not a single person on earth is always good and never sins. There's no one on earth... Who can live, you know, after Adam and Eve, there's no one on earth who could live a perfect, righteous life outside of Jesus Christ. Not a single person. Now, technically, Solomon's not wrong. 
because he says, not a single person on earth is always righteous, always good and, and never sins, because Jesus isn't on earth, he's sitting at the right hand of God. But that's not really what he's saying here. He's saying, in general, there are no righteous people on earth. If we're going to stone every person who's not righteous, we have to start with ourselves. Look with me at Ecclesiastes 7, 26 to 29. Ecclesiastes 7, 26 to 29. And we're going to look a little bit about at sexual immorality. I discovered that a seductive woman, and this could go either way, by the way. I know this, this verse is going to sound, it's going to sound a little sexist. I just want to put the elephant out there in the room. It's going to sound a little sexist, but I'm going to explain why it's not. I discovered that a seductive woman is a trap more bitter than death. Her passion is a snare, and her, sands, her hand, soft hands are chains. And those who are pleasing to God will escape her, but sinners will be caught in her snare. This is my conclusion, says the teacher. I've discovered after looking at the matter from every possible angle, though I have searched repeatedly, I have not found what I was looking for. Only one out of a thousand men is virtuous, but not, a wom- not one woman. But I did find, find this. God created people to be virtuous. But they each turned to follow their own downward path. You're going to say, well, that's hard for you to come back from that. Yeah, maybe. Because it does sound sexist. But I want you to understand Solomon's point of view is very skewed. His point of view is very skewed. This, says, this passage says more about Solomon than it does about men and women. I mean, have you ever heard of or known of a man who sleeps around? Yes. Have you ever heard of men who are temptuous towards others? Yes. You can't say there's only one man in a thousand but no women. What this says is, Solomon surrounded himself by people like himself. He was choosing poorly, and he had a type when it came to women. He had a type, and that type was not a great type. (laughs) Solomon had an idea in his head, and frankly, in today's terms, he was kind of a floozy. Look with me at, at, at 1 Kings 11, 1 to 8. 1 Kings 11, 1 to 8. Now, King Solomon loved many foreign women, along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women, from the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the people of Israel, you shall not enter into marriage with them, neither shall they with you. For surely they will turn your heart after their gods. Solomon clung to these in love. He had 700 wives who were princesses and 300 concubines. And his wives turned, his heart, turned away his heart. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods. And his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as was the heart of David his father." For Solomon went after Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and after Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. So Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and did not wholly follow the Lord, as David his father had done. Then Solomon built a high place for Shemosh, the abomination of Moab, and for Molech, the abomination of the Ammonites. 
on the mountain east of Jerusalem. And so he did, he, and so he did for all his foreign wives who made offerings and sacrifice to their gods. Solomon, in all his wisdom, had a very unhealthy relationship with sex. He accumulated many wives, if this was unwise. First of all, he was already disobeying God. How much better would it be for Solomon to have found a wife who was righteous and pure in heart and would be faithful to him all of his life? Instead, he opted out for that and went for a thousand wives. So if you have a thousand wives, I, I think that it's important to realize some math here. They wouldn't have all been close with him at the same time. Over the years, he probably was trading in for younger women. And that's because lust has a way of seeking to corrupt. What do I mean by that? Lust has a desire towards corruption, to destroy purity and youth for corruptive purposes. That's just how lust is. What is a concubine, you might ask? Well, it's a good question. A concubine is a wife given in tribute, either as a part of war, the spoils of war, because you killed all the men in that town, or because you know, another country decided to, instead of war, give you some women. Does it sound a great, like a great deal for women? No. I, you know, my, I lost my husband. I've been traded to a, a guy who has a thousand wives. Uh, that would stink, right? That's not an ideal situation for women. But it's ironic because Solomon had this idea. He's preaching to us about sexual sin. The irony of Solomon's statements about sin is this. Solomon was definitely one of the worst examples in the Bible of sexual sin. You know, he has some nerve talking to us about sexual sin. He's got some nerve because he, he did all this stuff. He had a thousand wives. He corrupted himself. And in the midst of that, he followed after their gods and decided that the best way to serve these wives was to create additional temples to the east of Jerusalem. And these temples to false gods became stumbling blocks for all of Israel for many years to come. You can read it over and over again. Anytime you see in additional places in Kings where they say, he did not tear down the high places. Which high places? The high places that Solomon created. The irony of Solomon trying to teach us about sexual sin, as he was one of the worst. You know, we don't have to look very far in our world to see that our world has become sexualized in many different ways. And lust is everywhere. And lust is toxic 
to our souls. It is a cancer to our souls. But all of sexual sin is equal in God's eyes, as is all sin. Now, not all consequences are the same, but all sin is considered equally evil. So that's, that's why Jesus says, if you look upon a woman with lust in your heart, you've committed adultery. They may not have the same consequences, but they have the same interior consequences. Sin is sin. But having discussed the irony of Solomon's wisdom and the irony of his statements, I want to talk, I want to switch next and start talking a little bit about the irony of being self-righteous. It is ironic to be self-righteous. And it's in in the midst of self-righteousness, we find ourselves judging others. But I want you to understand a couple of things that are really important. I want to give you two big truths about evil. Number one, there is no such thing as safe sin. And number two, God's grace is enough to cover it all. So there is no such thing as safe sin. Now, I think that there are people in, in, in maybe even in this room who think, well, okay, if I, if I lie in my heart, but I don't lie with my lips, it's safe. You know, if I look upon other people at, at, with lust, but I don't touch, that's safe. All the while, the soul-sucking nature of sin breeds more sin in our hearts. It doesn't stop there. It's not like what's happening on the inside never comes out. In fact, what the Bible says is out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. Right? Out of your life pours good and evil based on what is going on on the inside. That's why there is no such thing as safe sin. Now, having said that, I think it's important to follow that up with the fact that there is no sin greater than God's grace. So you may be full of shame. You may have said, okay, I, I've done a lot in my life, and you, then you don't know what I've done. And, and you know, if you did, you wouldn't, you wouldn't be my friend. And God's not going to forgive me because maybe this time I've, gone, I've really gone too far. This time it was too far. But that's not the gospel. The Word of God says that God's grace covers our sin. There is no sin that's greater than His grace because God created the sacrifice of Jesus Christ and His blood to cover our sins. His grace will always be greater than our sin. Having said that, I want you to have that in your mind as we go through this, this next passage this next passage is going to sound a little countercultural, and I don't want you to be distracted by the countercultural statements made in this, in this passage. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 to 11. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 to 11. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? So let's stop right there. We already know, even what Solomon said, that nobody does good and doesn't do evil. We're all unrighteous, right? Do you not know that the, that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Meaning, nobody. 
Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God, and such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. I don't want you to get hung up on the hot-button topic of the day of homosexuality. If we just understand right now that God has defined a righteous path of living. And if we don't listen to the world around us to define that righteous path, and we listen to the Word of God, it would change our lives. It would change our world. But, having said that, I understand that that could be a hot topic for you, and if you have any pressing questions about what the Bible thinks of homosexuality, talk to Paul. Thank you. You're, you're welcome, Paul, if you listen to this. You know, the fact is that we, we do have a word of God that is countercultural, and we can apologize for it or we can or we can adopt it and understand it. Now, having said that, though, I want to discuss the irony of being self-righteous. Because the irony of being self-righteous is this. We're often all better at judging others than we are our own hearts. We are better at judging others than our own hearts. So let me ask you the question. How does it affect you if somebody else is sinning? Well, it does affect you. It affects you in different ways. But we should have a mindset. We have an ironic mindset. Because there are many people in our country and in our world who think we can change the world by, by Im- implementing biblical standards on everyone's lives, even if they're not Christians. Sounds like a good idea. Might be good. Might help a little bit. But what good does it do if we implement Christian standards on non-believers, even if they change their lives and still go to hell? What difference does it make if we impose our standards on a non-Christian world and they all go to hell anyway? What, did you feel better? Because it doesn't make me feel better. In fact, the Word of God doesn't even support that. It supports the idea of an Israel who God told to live a certain way and provided laws according to that way. We are not Israel. So how do we live in a sinful world and navigate the difficult issues of this world? Very carefully. And yet, we are not called to judge the world. I don't want that job. I am not going to be sitting on the throne of God at the end of time deciding who goes to heaven and who doesn't. There's only one person sitting on that throne. And guess what? There's only one question that matters. 
And that question is, did you place your faith in Jesus Christ for his salvation? Put your faith in his death, his burial, his resurrection, and that's it. That's how eternity is defined. That's how salvation is defined. And that's the irony. Because if we were to take this list, none of us would escape hell. Not a single one of us. So you can rank those sins within that list or not. But the Bible doesn't support that. But look with me again at verse 11, 1 Corinthians 6, 11. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Regardless of those categories, if you place your faith in Jesus Christ, you are no longer those things. Those things don't define you. You are only defined one way, and that's by the blood of Christ. You are now washed, sanctified, justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of God. Which brings us to our last ironic point this morning. And it's the irony of how God views you. You are no longer eternally defined by your actions, or even your thoughts. When we accept Jesus Christ as our Savior, we are no longer defined by, our, by, by any other way than through the blood of Jesus Christ. This should give us a sense of peace because he died for our sins, past, present, and future. We have a tendency to slip back into a works-based theology anytime things aren't going our way. God, I messed up. I expect you to, to give me the smackdown on my life because I did. I messed up. And sometimes he does. Sometimes God has to discipline us so that we understand that we can't, we can't live in an unrighteous path because it's not good for us, not because he's a cosmic killjoy. He wants us to have a way of righteous living, and that way is good for us and for those around us and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. But we are not defined by the things that are happening exterior or interior to our bodies. We're not defined by our behaviors or our actions. We are not our sin any longer. That is what you once were. It's not who you are now. And so, when we go to Christ. We go before the throne of God. And maybe you struggle with this. Maybe I'm the only one who struggles with this. But when I go into my time with, with Jesus in the morning, and, and sometimes I think, you know what? I, I can't do this right now. Because I feel bad about myself. I know the mistakes that I've made. I know the things that I've done. I can't spend time with God right now. But you already know that you are no longer those things, and your time with God isn't about you. You know, when you go to worship God, you don't worship Him based on your worth, but on His. So if you say, I'm not worthy to worship, 
and you say that today, and you're saying, you know what, I'm not worthy to worship today. I, I don't want to spend time with God. Guess what? Nothing changed from yesterday to today. You're not any more or less worthy than you were yesterday. But God is worthy of your praise. He's worthy of all praise. Don't set up for yourselves temples on high places, other places to worship. I'm not talking about false gods. I'm talking about how we make idols out of things in our lives. Don't set up for yourselves idols on those hills that are a temptation for you later. Instead, understand that's not how God sees you. You are not defined by your works. You are defined by the grace of God. But the Bible says, wait, wait, wait. So should we, should we go on sinning that grace may abound? And Paul says, absolutely not. No. Because if we are sanctified, sanctification is a daily process. Make small changes in your life. Grow towards success. Grow towards victory in your life. Don't stop working on it. You know, as we place our faith in Jesus Christ, everything changes. It's no longer about us. It's about him. And there's no sacrifice that you can give to him that is greater than the one he's already given to you. So maybe you're here today and you've never received Christ as your Savior. Maybe today's the Would you pray with me? God, we thank you for the standards that your word puts forth. Those standards are high, and we feel it sometimes. And sometimes we even want to take those high standards and we put them onto other people around us. And as much as we would like to do that, we know that you don't call us to do that. God, we know that Solomon, in, in, in his wisdom, wasn't all that wise. And if he can't outsmart sin, I pray that we wouldn't either. That instead we would see you as the kind of heavenly father that is trying to protect us from the pain of the consequences of sin in our lives. God, as we submit to the way that you want us to live, I pray that you would change our hearts to stop looking inward, to stop looking at our actions, but to start looking at you and your salvation. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.